Chapter Two of the Talisman. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lizzie Driver. The Talisman by Sir Walter Scott. Chapter Two. Times of danger have always, and in peculiar degree, their seasons of goodwill and security and this was particularly so in the ancient feudal ages, in which, as the manners of the period had assigned war to be the chief and most worthy occupation of mankind, the intervals of peace, or rather of truce, were highly relished by those warriors to whom they were seldom granted, and endeared by the very circumstances which rendered them transitory. It is not worth while preserving any permanent enmity against a foe whom a champion has fought with to-day, and may again stand in bloody opposition to on the next morning. The time and situation afforded so much room for the ebullition of violent passions, that men, unless when peculiarly opposed to each other, or provoked by the recollection of private and individual wrongs, cheerfully enjoyed in each other's society the brief intervals of pacific intercourse which a warlike life admitted. The distinction of religions, nay, the fanatical zeal which animated the followers of the cross and of the crescent against each other, was much softened by a feeling so natural to generous combatants, and especially cherished by the spirit of chivalry. This last strong impulse had extended itself gradually from the Christians to their mortal enemies the Saracens, both of Spain and of Palestine. The latter were, indeed, no longer the fanatical savages who had burst from the centre of Arabian deserts, with the sabre in one hand and the Koran in the other, to inflict death or the faith of Mohammed, or, at the best, slavery and tribute, upon all who dared to oppose the belief of the prophet of Mecca. These alternatives, indeed, had been offered to the unwarlike Greeks and Syrians, but in contending with the Western Christians, animated by a zeal as fiery as their own, and possessed of as unconquerable courage, address, and success in arms, the Saracens gradually caught a part of their manners, and especially of those chivalrous observances, which were so well calculated to charm the minds of a proud and conquering people. They had their tournaments and games of chivalry, they had even their knights, or some rank analogous, and above all the Saracens observed their plighted faith, with an accuracy which might sometimes put to shame those who owned a better religion. Their truces, whether national or betwixt individuals, were faithfully observed. And thus it was that war, in itself perhaps the greatest of evils, yet gave occasion for display of good faith, generosity, clemency, and even kindly affections, which less frequently occur in more tranquil periods, where the passions of men, experiencing wrongs, or entertaining quarrels which cannot be brought to instant decision, are apt to smoulder for a length of time in the bosoms of those who are so unhappy as to be their prey. It was under the influence of these milder feelings, which soften the horrors of warfare, that the Christian and Saracen, who had so lately done their best for each other's mutual destruction, rode at a slow pace towards the fountain of palm-trees, to which the knight of the Cruchant Leopard had been tending, when interrupted in mid-passage by his fleet and dangerous adversary. 
each was wrapped for some time in his own reflections, and took breath after an encounter which had threatened to be fatal to one or both, and their good horses seemed no less to enjoy the interval of repose. That of the Saracen, however, though he had been forced into much the more violent and extended sphere of motion, appeared to have suffered less from fatigue than the charger of the European knight. The sweat hung still clammy on the limbs of the latter, when those of the noble Arab were completely dried by the interval of tranquil exercise, all saving the foam flakes which were still visible on his bridle and housings. The loose soil on which he trod so much augmented the distress of the Christian's horse, heavily loaded by his own armour and the weight of his rider, that the latter jumped from his saddle, and led his charger along the deep dust in the loamy soil, which was burnt in the sun into a substance more impalpable than the finest sand, and thus gave the faithful horse refreshment at the expense of his own additional toil. For, iron-sheathed as he was, he sunk over the mailed shoes at every step which he placed on a surface so light and unresisting. "'You are right,' said the Saracen, and it was the first word that either had spoken since their truce was concluded. "'Your strong horse deserves your care. "'But what do you do in the desert with an animal "'which sinks over the fetchlock at every step, "'as if he would plant each foot deep as the root of a date-tree?' "'Thou speakest rightly, Saracen,' said the Christian knight, "'not delighted at the tone with which the infidel "'criticised his favourite steed. "'Rightly, according to thy knowledge and observation.' "'but my good horse hath ere now borne me, in mine own land, "'over as wide a lake as thou seest yonder spread out behind us, "'yet not wet one hair above his hoof.' "'The Saracen looked at him with as much surprise "'as his manners permitted him to testify, "'which was only expressed by a slight approach to a disdainful smile, "'that hardly curled perceptibly the broad, thick moustache "'which enveloped his upper lip. "'It is justly spoken,' he said, "'instantly composing himself to his usual serene gravity. "'List to a frank and hear a fable.' "'Thou art not courteous, misbeliever,' replied the crusader, "'to doubt the word of a dubbed knight. "'And were it not that thou speakest in ignorance, and not in malice, "'our truce had its ending ere it has well begun. "'Thinkest thou I tell thee an untruth when I say that I, "'one of five hundred horsemen, armed in complete mail, have ridden,' I and ridden for miles, upon water as solid as the crystal, and ten times less brittle. "'What wouldst thou tell me?' answered the Moslem. "'Yonder inland sea thou dost point at is peculiar in this, that, by the especial curse of God, it suffers nothing to sink in its waves, but wafts them away, and casts them on its margin. But neither the Dead Sea, nor any of the seven oceans which invary in the earth, will endure on their service the pressure of a horse's foot.' "'more than the Red Sea endured to sustain the advance of Pharaoh and his host. "'You speak truth after your knowledge, Saracen,' said the Christian knight. "'And yet, trust me, I fable not according to mine. "'Heat in this climate converts the soil into something almost as unstable as water. "'And in my land cold often converts the water itself into a substance as hard as rock. "'Let us speak of this no longer.' for the thoughts of the calm, clear, blue refulgence of a winter's lake, glimmering to stars and moonbeam, aggravate the horrors of this fiery desert, 
where, methinks, the very air which we breathe is like the vapour of its fiery furnace, seven times heated. The Saracen looked on him with some attention, as if to discover in what sense he was to understand words which, to him, must have appeared either to contain something of mystery or of imposition. At length he seemed determined in what manner to receive the language of his new companion. "'You are,' he said, "'of a nation that loves to laugh, "'and you make sport with yourselves and with others "'by telling what is impossible "'and reporting what never chanced. "'Thou art one of the knights of France "'who hold it for glee and pastime "'to gab, as they term it, "'of exploits that are beyond human power.'" Gabba, this French word, signified a sort of sport much used among the French chivalry, which consisted in vying with each other in making the most romantic gasconades. The verb and the meaning are retained in Scottish. Close brackets. I were wrong to challenge for the time the privilege of thy speech, since boasting is more natural to thee than truth. I am not of their land, neither of their fashion, said the knight, which is, as thou well sayest, to gab of that which they dare not undertake, or undertaking cannot perfect. But in this I have imitated their folly, Bray Saracen, that in talking to thee of what thou canst not comprehend, I have, even in speaking most simple truth, fully incurred the character of a braggart in thy eyes. So pray you, let my words pass. They had now arrived at the knot of palm-trees, and the fountain which welled out from beneath their shade in sparkling profusion. We have spoken of a moment of truce in the midst of a war, and this— a spot of beauty in the midst of a sterile desert was scarce less dear to the imagination. It was a scene which, perhaps, would elsewhere have deserved little notice. But, as a single speck in a boundless horizon, which promised the refreshment of shade and living water, these blessings, held cheap where they are common, rendered the fountain in its neighbourhood a little paradise. Some generous or charitable hand, ere yet the evil days of Palestine began, had walled in and arched over the fountain, to preserve it from being absorbed in the earth, or choked by the flitting clouds of dust with which the last breath of wind covered the desert. The arch was now broken and partly ruinous, but it still so far projected over and covered in the fountain that it excluded the sun in a great measure from its waters, which, hardly touched by a straggling beam, while all around was blazing, lay in a steady repose, alike delightful to the eye and the imagination. Stealing from under the arch, they were first received in a marble basin, much defaced indeed, but still cheering the eye, by showing that the place was anciently considered as a station, that the hand of man had been there, and that man's accommodation had been in some measure attended to. The thirsty and weary traveller was reminded by these signs that others had suffered similar difficulties, reposed in the same spot, and, doubtless, found their way in safety to a more fertile country. Again, the scarce visible current which escaped from the basin served to nourish the few trees which surrounded the fountain, and, where it sunk into the ground and disappeared, its refreshing presence was acknowledged, by a carpet of velvet verdure. In this delightful spot the two warriors halted, 
and, each after his own fashion, proceeded to relieve his horse from saddle, bit, and rein, and permitted the animals to drink at the basin, ere they refreshed themselves from the fountain-head, which arose under the vault. Then they suffered the steeds to go loose, confident that their interest, as well as their domesticated habits, would prevent their straying from the pure water and fresh grass. Christian and Saracen next sat down together on the turf, and produced each the small allowance of store which they carried for their own refreshment. Yet, ere they severally proceeded to their scanty meal, they eyed each other with that curiosity which the close and doubtful conflict in which they had been so lately engaged was calculated to inspire. Each was desirous to measure the strength, and form some estimate of the character, of an adversary so formidable, and each was compelled to acknowledge that, had he fallen in the conflict, it had been by a noble hand. The champions formed a striking contrast to each other in person and features, and might have formed no inaccurate representatives of their different nations. The Frank seemed a powerful man, built after the ancient Gothic cast of form, with light brown hair, which, on the removal of his helmet, was seen to curl thick and profusely over his head. His features had acquired, from the hot climate, a hue much darker than those parts of his neck which were less frequently exposed to view, or than was warranted by his full and well-opened blue eye, the colour of his hair, and of the moustaches which thickly shaded his upper lip, while his chin was carefully divested of beard after the Norman fashion. His nose was Grecian and well-formed, his mouth rather large in proportion, but filled with well-set, strong, and beautifully white teeth, his head small, and sat upon the neck with much grace. His age could not exceed thirty, but if the effects of toil and climate were allowed for, he might be three or four years under that period. His form was tall, powerful, and athletic, like that of a man whose strength might, in later life, become unwieldy, but which was hitherto united with lightness and activity. His hands, when he withdrew the mailed gloves, were long, fair, and well-proportioned, the wrist-bones peculiarly large and strong, and the arms remarkably well-shaped and brawny. A military hardihood and careless frankness of expression characterized his language and his motions and his voice had the tone of one more accustomed to command than to obey, and who was in the habit of expressing his sentiments aloud and boldly, whenever he was called upon to announce them. The Saracen emir formed a marked and striking contrast with the western crusader. His stature was indeed above the middle size, but he was at least three inches shorter than the European, whose size approached the gigantic. His slender limbs and long, spare hands and arms, though well proportioned to his person, and suited to the style of his countenance, did not at first aspect promise the display of vigour and elasticity which the emir had lately exhibited. But on looking more closely, his limbs, where exposed to view, seemed divested of all that was fleshy or cumbersome, so that nothing being left but bone, brawn, and sinew, it was a frame fitted for exertion and fatigue, far beyond that of a bulky champion, 
whose strength and size are counterbalanced by weight, and who is exhausted by his own exertions. The countenance of the Saracen naturally bore a general national resemblance to the eastern tribe from whom he descended, and was as unlike as possible to the exaggerated terms in which the minstrels of the day were wont to represent the infidel champions, and the fabulous description which a sister art still presents as the Saracen's head upon signposts. His features were small, well-formed, and delicate, though deeply embrowned by the eastern sun, and terminated by a flowing and curled black beard, which seemed trimmed with peculiar care. The nose was straight and regular, the eyes keen, deep-set, black, and glowing, and his teeth equalled in beauty the ivory of his deserts. The person and proportions of the Saracen, in short, stretched on the turf near to his powerful antagonist, might have been compared to his sheeny and crescent-formed sabre, with its narrow and light but bright and keen Damascus blade, contrasted with the long and ponderous Gothic war-sword, which was flung unbuckled on the same sod. The emir was in the very flower of his age, and might perhaps have been termed eminently beautiful, but with the narrowness of his forehead, and something of too much thinness and sharpness of feature, or at least what might have seemed such in a European estimate of beauty. The manners of the eastern warrior were grave, graceful, and decorous, indicating, however, in some particulars, the habitual restraint, which men of warm and choleric tempers often set as a guard upon their native impetuosity of disposition, and at the same time a sense of his own dignity, which seemed to impose a certain formality of behaviour in him who entertained it. This haughty feeling of superiority was perhaps equally entertained by his new European acquaintance, but the effect was different. And the same feeling which dictated to the Christian knight a bold, blunt, and somewhat careless bearing, as one too conspicuous of his own importance to be anxious about the opinions of others, appeared to prescribe to the Saracen a style of courtesy more studiously and formally observant of ceremony. Both were courteous, but the courtesy of the Christian seemed to flow from a good-humoured sense of what was due to others, that of the Muslim from a high feeling of what was to be expected from himself. The provision which each had made for his refreshment was simple, but the meal of the Saracen was abstemious. A handful of dates and a morsel of coarse barley-bread sufficed to relieve the hunger of the latter, whose education had habituated them to the fare of the desert, although, since their Syrian conquests, the Arabian simplicity of life frequently gave place to the most unbounded profusion of luxury. A few draughts from the lovely fountain by which they reposed completed his meal. That of the Christian, though coarse, was more genial. Dried hog's flesh, the abomination of the Muslim, was the chief part of his repast, and his drink, derived from a leathern bottle, contained something better than pure element. He fed with more display of appetite, and drank with more appearance of satisfaction, than the Saracen judged it becoming to show in the performance of a mere bodily function. And, doubtless, the secret contempt which each entertained for the other, as the follower of a false religion, 
was considerably increased by the marked difference of their diet and manners. But each had found the weight of his opponent's arm, and the mutual respect which the bold struggle had created was sufficient to subdue other and inferior considerations. Yet the Saracen could not help remarking the circumstances which displeased him in the Christian's conduct and manners, and, after he had witnessed for some time in silence the keen appetite which protracted the knight's banquet long after his own was concluded, he thus addressed him. "'Valiant Nazarene, is it fitting that one who can fight like a man should feed like a dog or a wolf? Even a misbelieving Jew would shudder at the food which you seem to eat with as much relish as if it were fruit from the trees of paradise.' "'Valiant Saracen,' answered the Christian, looking up with some surprise at the accusation thus unexpectedly brought, "'know thou that I exercise my Christian freedom in using that which is forbidden to the Jews, being, as they esteem themselves,' under the bondage of the old law of Moses. We, Saracen, be it known to thee, have a better warrant for what we do, Ave Maria, be we thankful. And, as if in defiance of his companion's scruples, he concluded a short Latin grace with a long draught from the leathern bottle. That, too, you call a part of your liberty, said the Saracen, and as you feed like the brutes, so you degrade yourself to the bestial condition by drinking a poisonous liqueur, which even they refuse. No, foolish Saracen, replied the Christian without hesitation, that thou blasphemest the gifts of God, even with the blasphemy of thy father Ishmael. The juice of the grape is given to him that will use it wisely, as that which cheers the heart of man after toil, refreshes him in sickness, and comforts him in sorrow. He who so enjoyeth it may thank God for his wine-cup, as for his daily bread. And he who abuseth the gift of heaven is not a greater fool in his intoxication than thou in thine abstinence. The keen eye of the Saracen kindled at this sarcasm, and his hand sought the hilt of his poignard. It was but a momentary thought, however, and died away in the reconciliation of the powerful champion with whom he had to deal and the desperate grapple, the impression of which still throbbed in his limbs and veins. And he contented himself with pursuing this contest in colloquy, as more convenient for the time. Thy words, he said, O Nazarene, might create anger, did not thy ignorance raise compassion. Seest thou not, O thou more blind than any who asks arms at the door of the mosque, that the liberty thou dost boast of is restrained even in that which is dearest to man's happiness and to his household, and that thy law, if thou dost practice it, binds thee in marriage to one single mate, be she sick or healthy, be she fruitful or barren, bring she comfort and joy, or clamour and strife, to thy table and to thy bed. This, Nazarene, I do indeed call slavery. Whereas... To the faithful hath the prophet assigned upon earth the patriarchal privileges of Abraham, our father, and of Solomon, the wisest of mankind, having given us here a succession of beauty at our pleasure, and beyond the grave the black-eyed Horus of paradise. Now, by his name that I most reverence in heaven, said the Christian, and by hers whom I most worship on earth, thou art but blinded and a bewildered infidel. That diamond signet which thou wearest on thy finger— 
"'Thou holdest it, doubtless, as of inestimable value?' "'Balsora and Baghdad cannot show the like,' replied the Saracen. "'But what avails it to our purpose?' "'Much,' replied the Frank, "'as thou shalt thyself confess. "'Take my war-axe, and dash the stone into twenty shivers. "'Would each fragment be as valuable as the original gem, "'or would they, all collected, bear the tenth part of its estimation?' "'That is a child's question,' answered the Saracen. "'The fragments of such a stone would not equal the entire jewel "'in the degree of hundreds to one.' "'Saracen,' replied the Christian warrior, "'the love which a true knight binds on one only, fair and faithful, "'is the gem entire. "'The affection thou flingest among thy enslaved wives and half-wedded slaves "'is worthless comparatively, as the sparkling shivers of the broken diamond.' "'Now, by the holy Kabar, said the emir, "'thou art a madman, who hugs his chain of iron as if it were of gold. "'Look more closely. "'This ring of mine would lose half its beauty were it not the signet encircled "'and encased with these lesser brilliants, which grace it and set it off. "'The central diamond is man, firm and entire, "'his value depending on himself alone. "'And this circle of lesser jewels are women, borrowing his lustre.' "'which he deals out to them as best suits his pleasure or his convenience. "'Take the central stone from the signet, "'and the diamond itself remains as valuable as ever, "'while the lesser gems are comparatively of little value. "'And this is the true reading of thy parable. "'For what saith the poet Monsau? "'It is the favour of man which giveth beauty and comeliness to women, "'as the stream glitters no longer when the sun seeth to shine.' "'Saracen,' replied the crusader, "'thou speakest like one who never saw a woman "'worthy the affection of a soldier. "'Believe me, couldst thou look upon those of Europe, "'to whom, after heaven, "'we of the order of knighthood vow fellity and devotion, "'thou wouldst loathe for ever "'the poor sensual slaves who form thy harem. "'The beauty of our fair ones gives point to our spears "'and edge to our swords. "'Their words are our law.' and as soon will a lamp shed lustre when unkindled, as a knight distinguish himself by feats of arms, having no mistress of his affection. "'I have heard of this frenzy among the warriors of the West,' said the emir, "'and have ever accounted it one of the accompanying symptoms of that insanity which brings you hither to obtain possession of an empty sepulchre. But yet, methinks, so highly have the Franks whom I have met with extolled the beauty of their women.' I could well be contented to behold with mine own eyes those charms which can transform such brave warriors into the tools of their pleasure. Brave Saracen, said the knight, if I were not on a pilgrimage to the Holy Sepulchre, it should be my pride to conduct you, on assurance of safety, to the camp of Richard of England, than whom none knows better how to do honour to a noble foe. And though I be poor and unattended, Yet have I interest to secure for thee, or any such as thou seemest, not safety only, but respect and esteem. There shouldst thou see several of the fairest beauties of France and Britain, form a small circle, the brilliancy of which exceeds ten thousandfold the lustre of mines of diamonds such as thine. Now, by the cornerstone of the Kabar, said the Saracen, I will accept thy invitation as freely as it is given. "'if thou wilt postpone thy present intent. "'And, credit me, brave Nazarene, 
it were better for thyself to turn back thy horse's head towards the camp of thy people, for to travel towards Jerusalem without a passport is but a wilful casting away of thy life. I have a pass, answered the knight, producing a parchment, under Saladin's hand and signet. The Saracen bent his head to the dust, as he recognized the seal and handwriting of the renowned Soldan of Egypt and Syria, and having kissed the paper with profound respect, he pressed it to his forehead, then returned it to the Christian, saying, Rash, Frank, thou hast sinned against thine own blood and mine, for not showing this to me when we met. You came with a levelled spear, said the knight. Had a troop of Saracens so assailed me, it might have stood with my honour to have shown the Soldan's pass. "'but never to one man.' "'And yet one man,' said the Saracen haughtily, "'was enough to interrupt your journey.' "'True, brave Muslim,' replied the Christian, "'but there are few such as thou art. "'Such falcons fly not in flocks, "'or if they do, they pounce not in numbers upon one.' "'Thou dost us but justice,' said the Saracen, "'evidently gratified by the compliment.' as he had been touched by the implied scorn of the European's previous boast. From us thou shouldst have had no wrong. But well it was for me that I failed to slay thee, with the safeguard of the king of kings upon thy person. Certain it were that the cord or the sabre had justly avenged such guilt. I am glad to hear that its influence shall be availing to me, said the knight, for I have heard that the road is infested with robber tribes, who regard nothing in comparison of an opportunity of plunder. "'The truth has been told to thee, brave Christian,' said the Saracen. "'But I swear to thee, by the turban of the prophet, that shouldst thou miscarry in any hunt of such villains, I will myself undertake thy revenge with five thousand horse. I will slay every man of them, and send their women to such distant captivity, that the name of their tribe shall never again be heard within five hundred miles of Damascus.' I will sow with salt the foundations of their village, and there shall never live thing dwell there, even from that time forward. I had rather the trouble which you designed for yourself were in revenge of some other more important person than of me, noble emir, replied the knight. But my vow is recorded in heaven, for good or for evil, and I must be indebted to you for pointing me out the way to my resting-place for this evening. That, said the Saracen, "'must be under the black covering of my father's tent.' "'This night,' answered the Christian, "'I must pass in prayer and patience with a holy man, "'Theodoric of Engadi, "'who dwells amongst these wilds, "'and spends his life in the service of God.' "'I will at least see you safe thither,' said the Saracen. "'That would be a pleasant convoy for me,' said the Christian.' yet might endanger the future security of the good father, for the cruel hand of your people has been red with the blood of the servants of the Lord, and therefore do we come hither in plate and mail, with sword and lance, to open the road to the holy sepulchre, and protect the chosen saints and anchorites who yet dwell in this land of promise and of miracle. Nazarene, said the Muslim, in this the Greeks and Syrians have much belied us, "'seeing we do but after the word of Abu Bakr al-Wakil, "'the successor of the Prophet, "'and, after him, the first commander of true believers. "'Go forth,' he said, "'Yezid ben Sofian. 
when he sent that renowned general to take Syria from the infidels. Quit yourself like men in battle, but slay neither the aged, the infirm, the women, nor the children. Waste not the land, neither destroy corn and fruit trees. They are the gifts of Allah. Keep faith when you have made any covenant, even if it be to your own harm. If ye find holy men labouring with their hands, and serving God in the desert, hurt them not, neither destroy their dwellings. But when you find them with shaven crowns, they are of the synagogue of Satan. Smite with the sabre, slay, cease not till they become believers or tributaries. As the caliph, companion of the prophet, hath told us, so have we done, and those whom our justice has smitten are but the priests of Satan. But unto the good men who, without stirring up nation against nation, worship sincerely in the faith of Isar ben Mariam, we are a shadow and a shield. And such being he whom you seek, even though the light of the prophet hath not reached him, from me he will have only love, favour, and regard. This anchorite, whom I would now visit, said the warlike pilgrim, is, I have heard, no priest. But were he of that anointed and sacred order, I would prove with my good lance against Pinim and infidel. Let us not defy each other, brother, interrupted the Saracen. We shall find, either of us, enough of Franks or of Muslim, on whom to exercise both sword and lance. This Theodoric is protected both by Turk and Arab, and, though one of strange conditions at intervals, yet on the whole he bears himself so well as the follower of his own prophet, that he merits the protection of him who was sent. Now by our lady Saracen, exclaimed the Christian, if thou darest name in the same breath the camel-driver of Mecca with... An electrical shock of passion thrilled through the form of the emir, but it was only momentary, and the calmness of his reply had both dignity and reason in it, when he said, Slander not him who thou knowest not, the rather that we venerate the founder of thy religion, while we condemn the doctrine which your priests have spun from it. I will myself guide thee to the cavern of the hermit, which, methinks, without my help, thou wouldst find it a hard matter to reach. And on the way, let us leave to mullahs and to monks to dispute about the divinity of our faith, and speak on themes which belong to youthful warriors, upon battles, upon beautiful women, upon sharp swords, and upon bright armour. End of chapter 2